Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali. I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor. I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Before we go on, I just want to give a quick shout out to Brilliant, who are our sponsors for this episode. Brilliant is pretty much the best place to learn math, science, and computer science online. A lot of the maths that we're taught in schools focuses on memorizing some method and getting good at repeating that method in an exam. But the best thing about Brilliant is that it actually helps you develop intuition and real understanding of the concepts. They have a great series of courses on the fundamentals of probability and statistics, which I think are a super important topic for everyone in the 21st century. Learning and understanding this stuff will really change the way you see the world. Uh, so go to brilliant.org forward slash not overthinking. And the first 200 people to sign up via that link will get 20% off an annual subscription to the site. Big thank you to Brilliant for... Hello and welcome back to Not Overthinking. Tamo, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing, uh, I think it's, I think it's been a solid week. It's been fairly intense, but uh, yeah, intense, but good, I'd say. I think, I think the past couple of weeks have been fairly intense on the work front. Um, but uh, yeah, this weekend has been a bit more restful. How about you? It's good to hear. Mate, I've, I've had an emotional roller coaster this week. Really? It's been one of the most roller coaster weeks of my life, I think. Wow. What happened? Um, so mostly it's a lot of, a lot of issues with this book that I'm supposed to be writing. Okay. In that, A, there's a lot of crossed wires and a lot of like relationships to um, disentangle. So things like, you know, uh, w- when you write a book, it's, it's, it's not just you doing the writing. There's also like usually an agent involved. There's usually an editor. There's usually the yeah. publishing house. Um, in my case, there's my YouTube agency as well. And so... Uh, essentially like really early on when we, when we first started the deal, I didn't get a literary agent because I didn't really know anything about this industry. And now I've having gotten advice from loads of people who've been in the business, they basically all said you should get a literary agent. Yeah. But the issue is that because I've kind of been working with the editor and the publisher with a no agent basis, we were sort of working on a kind of handshake agreement. And now that an agent's going to come into the mix, they've looked at the contract and have said that, Hmm, this isn't really legit or, or this isn't ideal or this requires some negotiation. Wait, wait, wait. So you and the editor and the pub and the publisher had a handshake agreement. We're all chums and they're like, Ali, mate, we'll give you this much or whatever. Yep. And you're like, yeah, sounds good. Yep. <laughs> and then you, and then you turned around and, and said, Hey agent, like, does this look legit? And they're like, no dude, you're getting screwed. Uh, not you're getting screwed, but like there are definitely <laughs> changes that we can make uh, to this thing. And you probably should have had an agent from day one because these, are, these aren't the conversations that you should be having with your publisher. These are the mm. conversations your agent should be having with your publisher because they know what all of these 1,000 different legalese terms mean and you have absolutely no idea what's going on. And I was like, yep. And so there's been a... a, a so, so that was like one, one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that um, we've been working on this book proposal. Um, so a, a couple of weeks ago, I, I read out to you kind of what the main aim of the book was. And it was this idea of meaningful productivity this productivity yeah. equation, meaning output divided by time, all this, all this sort of stuff. And me and my editor have basically been putting in work over the last six months to shape this proposal up, uh, th- three months rather than six. 
and kind of grappling with the ideas and turning it into a freaking 80, 80 page long proposal. That's like 35,000 words. Wow. And this week I had a few calls with some American editors and basically they all said it was awful and it needs to be thrown out and started again. <laughs> really? Why? Um, they didn't like the farmer stuff. Uh, <laughs> they didn't like the farmer stuff. No. Um, their main thing was that like the, this book is trying to be too many things to too many people. And what you need is a one clear big idea that has like a very, like this is really freaking obvious what the book is about. And so for example, if you look at something like Deep Work by Cal Newport, which was the thing that skyrocketed him to, to fame, it's pretty obvious what Deep Work is about. It's basically like, you know, sit in a room for four hours and, and do some work for God's sake. Yeah. If you look at Atomic Habits by James Clear, <clears throat> it's a very, it's a very wide, well, it's a, it's a wide ranging book about habits, but like all of it essentially rests on this idea that 1% improvements over a long period of time lead to really good results. Yeah. And so you can like, when it comes to the elevator pitch of these books, you can say it in a sentence, you can say it in a paragraph, you can say it in yeah, a yeah, paragraph. Yeah. Yeah. And what these American guys were saying that, look, when it comes to a book being sold in the US, uh, in terms of a publisher wanting to buy it, it's basically sold on the basis of a two paragraph email. And if that two paragraph email is legit enough to get people's attention, then they will look at the first three pages of the proposal. And almost yeah, no one's yeah. going to read all 80 pages of the, of the proposal. Right. So you really need to nail down what is this book actually about? Um, there was this one dude that I spoke to who's, who's a very big name in the field right, where he was like, like, man, I got to be honest with you. If I were you, I would, I would throw it all out and start again. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and, and then I spoke to someone else who, was, who, who knows this guy. She was like, well, I probably wouldn't put it quite like that because this person can be quite blunt. But I, I broadly agree with the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I was like, oh, my God. And so it's been a real sort of roller coaster of like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is this book actually about? But I mean, right. like... This is I. This is something that like basically every author goes through like on a uh, for, for for every book often multiple times in the writing process. There's a quote from Stephen Pressfield, which is that um, the one thing and so something like uh, the one thing an author always thinks is what is this damn thing actually about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, it's just always like what the hell is this bloody book about? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's been a question that I am now. <laughs> going to take to a literal drawing board because I'm going to order a whiteboard for the kitchen and just sort of have it across a whole wall. Uh, nice. And now it's the case of, okay, get an agent, um, say to the editor, look, sorry, man, this is this proposal as we've got isn't working. We need to take some, some steps back. Then the release date gets pushed and pushed and, and the editor who have a really nice relationship, it feels, feels sad because we've been, <laughs> you know, he's, he'd been working on the basis that this would be coming out and coming out at a certain time, but now it's not ready for that. And it's just all these all these different sort of relationshipy aspects of the yeah. writing a book thing that I just didn't really appreciate six months ago when I, I, I got approached. So when the, let's talk about your feelings. Mm. When that, when that chap said, uh, look, man, I'm going to be blunt. <laughs> Sorry. That's the only rock. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I think you should start over. Like, how, how did you feel after he said that? I felt, I felt very relieved. What? Really? Yeah. And, I felt relieved because we're still like super early on in the process and at the, having, having that level of feedback at this point is like ridiculously helpful. Um, and because I want this book to be the best it can be, uh, I am not wedded to any one particular structure that I once, once sort of came up with. Um, and so it was in a way quite exciting to get that level of, all right, you need to scrap it and start again because now it's like, oh, okay. It's like, 
I, I, I wonder if it's a feeling where it, so it's like for the, for the last few months, I've sort of had the next two years of my life essentially planned out based on this book where it's like, okay, we're going to do the writing in the next six months, editing six months afterwards. And then there's a whole year long publication process and then marketing, blah, 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 blah. And then release date, December, 2022. Whereas now, and whereas now it feels like, oh, actually let's throw all that out. And it's like, let's literally spend six months honing down what, what is this bloody book actually about? really making the proposal as good as it can be and then doing the whole publishing thing, which feels like a relief because now there, like, there, there isn't this deadline over my head anymore of we need to have a first draft finished by August or December of this year. Right. Um, and the more I was like in, initially when I, when I got into this process, I was thinking, oh, first draft of a book, how hard can it be? If I do 2000 words a day, I'll bang it out in a month. Yeah. <laughs> that spoke to James Clear, who said it took him three to five years to write his first draft for Atomic Habits. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was like, ah, okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> so my expectations go it was very much a case of the dunning-kruger effect yeah <laughs> at the start i was like oh easy easy mode it's just yeah. a book but now i'm like damn it's all in my second brain already <laughs> i've made my granular notes what is it oh, I, I evergreen notes yeah whatever it was evergreen. yeah <laughs> i have so many youtube videos i can just repurpose all the content and i was like no yeah this, yeah <laughs> this, is not, this is not the book i want to write i want to write something that i'm actually proud of because this is going to stay with me forever basically and so it's not a case of, you know what, let's get something out there just because we know it's going to sell because of the audience. It's a case of let's actually yeah. write a really freaking good book. And that feels exciting because it's a different sort of project now. Yeah. Where it's all like all, all roads lead to lead towards let's write the best book we can rather than That's some roads good, being yeah. let's, write, let's write a good book and other roads being, oh, we want to get it out by a certain deadline so the publisher can be happy, so my YouTube agent can be happy, so we can make money, so blah, 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 blah. Now it's all yeah. just about just make the book really, really, really good. So it's fun. It's exciting. That's great. I think this thing around having an agent is really interesting because I think there's a lot of, I think there are a lot of fields where you need to make a deal that the two parties need to make a deal. And one party makes these deals for a living and the other party makes these deals a few times over the course of their life, you know? So for like, uh, yeah, like publishers, they make deals with authors, you know, for a living. They, they do this day in, day out. <laughs> They know exactly how to play the game. They know exactly like, you know, they are masters of this game. As a first time author, this is the first time you're playing this game. If you, you know, write some more books, maybe you'll have played it a few times in your life. Uh, I think it's kind of similar when it comes to like startup fundraising, where investors and VCs, you know, they, <laughs> they do the stuff for a living. They know exactly how to play the game. They know exactly like, you know, what the process, what the, what the process would ideally look like for them. And like, if you're a first time founder raising money for the first time, you know, you're sort of flying blind. Um, and you know, you're, you're, these people are in a sense on your side, like, you know, you're, it's a partnership with them, you know, and, and the same thing, like your thing with the publisher, it's a partnership, but like the incentives aren't, are not a hundred percent aligned. They, they, they're optimizing for certain things. You're optimizing for certain things. Same thing with like startups and investors. And I think we've been super lucky that we essentially have a couple of folks who, I think agent is basically the best way to describe them <laughs> where, um, yeah, they're basically our agent when it comes to this stuff and they help us figure out what the process should be and, you know, how we should be thinking about these things. Um, yeah, I think like flying blind into one of these kinds of deals when the other party does these deals for a living and you, you, you're doing this deal for the first time. Um, I think that's a really tough position to be in. Yeah. So that's been my, uh, issues over the last over the last week or so 
and then like yeah, taking a look at this idea for the book and thinking is, is this really the book I want to write and if there was only one key message that I could give across like what, what would that be and how do we craft something around that with that like it it's it's a bit like it's a bit like if you have an idea for a YouTube video you can't just make the YouTube video you have to think about what's the title and what's the thumbnail yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically that like title thumbnail hook is even more important in the book world apparently than it is in the YouTube world <laughs> and I think with our with our original title the productivity equation yes we were like oh it's just a working title we can always change it but the fact that that was the working title really shifted the direction of the book and it became a book based around the equation and you know part part one of the equation part two of the equation and it just that like, yeah as as much as you try and think that oh the title doesn't matter we can always change it like it really really does yeah yeah i, th I think i i can definitely empathize with this thing where you have like an idea you have like an intuitive sense of what you're trying to create but then you need to find the right packaging the right narrative the right framing to make it sort of engaging and compelling for other people yeah, I guess that's that. That's a lot of the stuff that you had to do with with causal, isn't it? Like you have this intuitive Absolutely. idea of what what yeah. the thing should be and how people should think about numbers, but <laughs> framing it in a way where people can get on board with it immediately is harder. Yeah, it's all about it's all about narrative, and I think like I think the two things sort of feed into each other. It's it's not that on the one hand you have you have the core idea, your vision, and then on the other hand you have like the narrative, and you need to convert the core idea into the narrative. It, it it it's a bit of a cycle where you you have this like core idea this vision thing and the process of trying to build a narrative around it actually changes how you think about it and it sort of like feeds into each other um i think like yeah we we've definitely gone through a lot of this with causal um particularly when fundraising narrative is super important um yeah being able to package your thing up in in a way that's like structured and, and in a way that seems inevitable, like, of course, this thing should exist kind of thing. Like, um, and so, yeah, I think it's a helpful exercise just to do, do that, like occasionally just like, actually there was a, a blog post recently by a chap called Kevin Kwok. Uh, he Kevin opines Kwok. about- uh, Are you the guy who wrote uh, Crazy Rich Asians or am I getting that wrong? I don't think this is the same Kevin Kwok. Uh, this Kevin Kwok opines about like, uh, tech companies and what makes the successful ones successful and stuff like that. And he wrote a blog post recently where, oh, let me try and find it. Just give me a sec. There was a good phrase. Just a moment. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I think there's a, this is an interesting analogy um, to maybe be drawn between startups and your book situation. <clears throat> I'll just read out a couple of segments of the post. Um, Kevin says, often the smell test of a company is how easily it can be dimensionally reduced. How few core, core elements can maximally explain it. People fairly push back that companies are intrinsically messy and cannot be compressed in this way. It is often true that VCs and outsiders simplify their view of companies in ways that are easier to remember but useless in practice. The flaws in this dimensionality reduction aren't reasons to ignore it. They are the reason it is important. <clears throat> As a founder, nobody's going to understand the full nuance of your company like you will. Everyone else does see a simplified, compressed, and sadly imperfect shadow of your company, Founders repeatedly underestimate the degree to which their products are complex and opaque to outsiders because they have it fully loaded in cash, i.e. like in, in their brain. They have seen every iteration, revision, and imagined in painful detail all the alternate lives their product could have lived. 
Most users never talk to someone at a company. Even if they do, the vast majority of their interactions with the company are with the product. Your users know nothing about how your company operates. They don't see all the late night whiteboarding sessions and careful deliberations that led to the specifics of each feature they use or the many iterations that were tested and rolled back and refined. They often only understand half of how your product can be used, much less your vision for how it should be used as it matures. And your future potential users don't even know you, don't even know you exist. Uh, as, a product, as product becomes the driver of most interactions with the company, External gatekeepers and proselytizers like journalists and bankers become less important. Instead, it's the clarity of a company's product and product and founder-driven distribution that becomes most key. We're still early on in companies internalizing this. This clarity is not just for users. It's even more important for employees. Um, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no, I accidentally scrolled. All right, some stuff about employees. Founders get advice to repeat what matters more regularly than they think they need to. Repetition may help employees remember what's important, but it pales in comparison to the clarity that comes from having strong atomic concepts to begin with. Like memes, simplicity is what makes them so transmissible. One exercise I've often found useful for CEOs to do with their co-founders and team is to ask an important question about the company and see how much everyone's answers differ. People are always shocked as, at how much they differ from even their co-founder. Um, it's natural to have differences, doesn't mean either person is wrong. But these unexpected differences in how to think about the company are the underlying fault lines that make it difficult to synchronize as a company are what matters and to have a common framework by which to discuss and debate important decisions. All of this shouldn't be misinterpreted. Very few companies come out of the womb with crisp atomic concepts. The nature of building a company is messy and complicated. Critics are right to say that many analyses oversimplify and give post hoc explanations of how to think about companies. But the process of examining that complexity and finding the most lossless ways to dimensionality reduce is not the province of armchair analysts. It is essential for founders and companies themselves to regularly do this refactoring. Just as companies build up technical debt, so too do they build up narrative debt. Typically, fundraising is a natural fitness function for doing this refactoring. For top companies, this is increasingly no longer true, but the importance of this cleanup has not shrunk. Whether for the sake of their users and employees, or so they can expand into becoming more complex platforms, companies must grapple with who they truly are before they can go after what they want to, uh, who they want to be. I think this idea of like narrative debt and narrative refactoring um, is super interesting. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and like, yeah, basically, it's it's not just. You know, the, the, the purpose of being able to express a complex, messy thing in a very simple way, it's not, it's not just so that, you know, the armchair think boys, you know, that have blogs and you know, journalists, it's not just so armchair think boys can understand what you're trying to do. Hmm. It's actually to kind of get clarity on the thing yourself and understand like what you can consider. Yeah, it, it, I think it's like a loop where your, your sort of initial vision feeds into the narrative and it sort of feeds back into the vision. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been thinking about this also on the, on the business front. And I had a, I had a call yesterday with, um, someone who ran growth for this other startup. And we were, we were talking about like the importance of sort of company vision and company values and these sorts of things. And it's one of those things that I have never quite appreciated because in the past, when I used to think of vision and values, there would be like, oh God, corporate BS, like what, what is this? Who even needs this? And increasingly as our team is now, is now growing and now there's like eight of us, I think it's becoming more and more and more important. And what, what this person was saying is that, um, you know, when it came to generating their, their three core values, they got like all 30 people at like an offsite retreat, team retreat and they spent like literally a whole day like brainstorming, being like, okay, what are our, what are our value what are our values and what do we want our values to be 
and they boiled it down to just these three things. And if you just look at those three things, you think, oh, okay, that's kind of obvious. But actually, it, it, it took large amounts of man hours to get to that point. And it's similar. I, I, I had a session with um, my business coach last week, and we were trying to figure out the, the, this question of what, what's the narrative for the business, i.e. my YouTube and media and associated things. And we spent an hour kind of going back and forth on a Google Doc and just sort of brainstorming ideas of like, what, what are we actually trying to do here? Like, what is, what is the aim? And the thing we, we landed on was the phrase, um, we help high achievers be more productive so they can spend time on what truly matters. Uh, so, so they can spend more time on what truly matters. And it took an hour of threshing around to get to that, that point. And that felt like, okay, yeah, that, that seems reasonable. Um, it doesn't quite have the, have, have the other aspect of it, which is that... Um, Enjoy, enjoying the journey along the way and so it needs a, a bit of refining but just having having that in my mind for the last week for example you know we were we were gonna create a sort of paid membership community around my stuff uh like a circle community and you know weekly sessions and things like that similar to what we have for for the podcast but just more more like a fan fan paid membership thing i kind of thought about it and realized that it doesn't really help that mission of help people be more productive so they can spend time on what truly matters. It wasn't going to be something that actually contributed interesting amounts to our top line revenue. It was something that was going to distract away from more important things like the book. And so I just kind of thought, hey, why, why bother with this? Let's just scrap it. And any content we, we were going to make for that would be better just being put out for free online. And now um, I think that's that's part of the vision. I do, I do want to refine it a little bit, but I think it needs to be done in in collaboration with the rest of the team figure out like what are we actually doing here and what's what's the vision like where do we want to go because right now my my view on this is very much that hey things are going well we're having fun let's just kind of do more of the same and just do it do it a bit better over time but that's not really the way you approach building a company it's maybe the way you you approach like if you're a one or two man band but as you start to get more team members even just for the sake of the employees (laughs) for the team members who want something to work towards it's useful to have but it also really helps theoretically will help us um focus on what what actually matters and say no to the sort of the unnecessary stuff yeah i think i think there's nothing wrong with just kind of you know if you're having fun and something's working there's nothing wrong with just keeping to do it but you could actually be having more fun if you take a step back think about the vision and it'll probably change how you spend your time and and the things you prioritize and Hmm. probably actually have more fun doing that yeah but also i think there is there's an extent to which like, 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 obviously, if we were to just focus on the, hey, we're having fun in the short term, let's let's do that and not think about the long term, we run the risk of <laughs> that fun running out because the business itself has not been particularly strong. So there's, there's the, it's, it's that balance of I'm, I'm doing this because it's fun and I'm making, <laughs> you know, having, having, having some level of long term planning as well. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I've really come to appreciate is that it's actually just how hard it is to distill something into a really crisp narrative and a really crisp vision. And like, you know. I think this is basically the job of leaders in ev- in everything. And I think previously, you know, when you listen to someone talk about something like, I don't know, someone talk about their company or like politicians or whatever, I, I never really appreciated how much work it takes to get to the simple, the, the simple sort of explanation. And, um, and I think now, now I really do like that. The, there's a thing that came to mind recent, I mean, not too recently, maybe like a year ago, a year and a half ago or something. Um, there's a, there's a program called Entrepreneur First in the UK, uh, and actually it's it's more of a global thing now. Um, and Matt Clifford is uh, the sort of founder and CEO. And I don't know at what point they arrived at this 
uh, this narrative. Um, but he's, he essentially talks about uh, how in every, in every like era of human civilization, there is a technology that enables the most ambitious people to have a massive impact. And, you know, maybe like the very first instance of this was like writing, you know, when like, when, you know, writing came about and, and the printing press and stuff like that, the, the highest leverage thing for ambitious people to do would have been to, you know, distribute their ideas via writing and so on. And I, I think, yeah, he has a few more examples of like different, different sort of eras of civilization where there is a different sort of technology of leverage that like the most impactful people, the most ambitious people um, use. And of course, like in the current generation, that technology, you know, technology is the technology of leverage. And so the most impactful people, the most ambitious people, he thinks should be starting technology companies to have like the max, maximal impact on the world. Um, and I, th I think like, I mean, I've probably done a shoddy job of explaining it. It's just like a great narrative. And like, <laughs> I think like four, four or five years ago, I mean, even like three years ago, I would have listened to that and said, oh yeah, that sounds all right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I can get on board. <laughs> but I really appreciate that it's not easy to come up with that. Like it, it's so... It, it seems so obvious once once you've arrived in the narrative of like oh yeah like of course of course that's it <laughs> but like getting there is so hard <laughs> mm. so what's what, what what's your what's your narrative for causal these days and how's how's that changed over time yeah this has changed a lot the initial narrative and the, the initial kind of um the initial vision was to bring probability to the masses uh we wanted to change the way people think about numbers and, and get people to think more about uncertainty and, and probability and things like that mm. um that's still it's still something we'd like to do um but i think after in interrogating that a little bit i think what it really came down to was that we're trying to build we're trying to give people a more human way to work with numbers a more human way to think about numbers um and this probability stuff is certainly part of that but there's a lot of other things that are part of that and so the uh the narrative nowadays, and I, well, maybe this will change, but I think this is this is like at a high enough level of abstraction that it probably won't change, is that we want to be the de facto way to work with numbers on a computer in the same way spreadsheets have kind of been the de facto way to work with numbers for the past uh, 40 years or so. That's um, that's sort of, that's that's the the highest level of abstraction of, of the narrative. What if we uh, go down a level of abstraction? <laughs> <laughs> I think the the act one of of this vision is to democratize business planning and forecasting within companies. Right now, what do you mean by finance? Yeah, right now, you know, in a company, you'll have a finance team that'll have some kind of financial model and scenario plans and things like that, which uh, the company will use to make decisions. And because these, it's really about business thinking. Like a lot of the business thinking is encoded inside a financial model. And if you are in the finance team or if you're senior management and you interact with them a lot, then you'll understand you'll understand how this stuff works. Most of the people in the rest of the company don't really understand how the business is thinking about its future um, because you know, they can't understand these esoteric spreadsheets. The outputs that are shared from these spreadsheets are very static. You can't really engage with them. Um, and so a big part of what we're trying to do is build a tool that lets more people be part of this process and more, more people sort of understand, you know, forecasting and planning within companies. Uh, and that, that's kind of what I mean by democratize. Like, you know, un understanding the company's future is something that every team in a company should be involved in and sort of actively engaged with 
but that's very hard to do right now. Um, and so that's that's sort of the act one of of what we're trying to do. And I think the act two is to bridge the disconnect between. Look, this is gonna this is always stuff that's gonna sound super niche to anyone who hasn't worked in a sort of in a company that uses these tools and things like that. Um, but right now, there's a, there's a big disconnect between backwards-looking numbers and forwards-looking numbers. Backwards-looking numbers are consumed typically within a business intelligence tool like Looker or Tableau or whatever. But any time you need to go from backwards-looking numbers to planning for the future, you then need an entirely different tool. You need a spreadsheet where you can write formulas and, and do, do calculations and things like that. And it, it's crazy that these two things are disconnected. And so, yeah, our vision is that numbers work really requires an all-in-one tool that can do all of these things in a way that sort of everyone in a company can can kind of contribute to that okay but there's even i i feel like there's even more a a concretized version of act one because that was still quite abstract like isn't there oh yeah we help x companies do y by by z type yeah let me just let me plug my laptop yeah i mean zooming in a bit more we want to be the way that mid-market companies manage their financial models. So companies that are you know, 50 to 500 people in size. We're starting off focusing more on sort of 100 to 200 people companies. We want to replace their Excel or their Google Sheets financial models with causal. That's uh, that's the more zoomed in sort of plan for the um, for the next 12, 12 to 24 months, I'd say. Okay. Does that get you excited? Sorry? Does that get you excited? I love it, man. It's sick. Yeah, dude, it's great. Because if, for example, a few years ago when you had the idea for Causal, someone told you that, look, you're going to spend two years of your life helping 100 to 200 people size, size companies replace their Google Sheets financial model with, with Causal, would that have gotten yeah. you excited? Or is it something that has become more exciting as you've gotten into it? Because I think it's, it's... It seems like boring AF. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> like your, your, the, the prime years of your life helping 100 to 200 man companies replace their Google Sheets financial model with causal. Like, like what the hell? <laughs> We're doing God's work here. <laughs> no, I think, I think there's a couple of reasons why it's exciting. Um, the first is that it's like a stepping stone as part of the larger vision to be the way to work with numbers on a computer. I mean, that probably sounds boring to at least half of people. Who, who cares how people work with numbers on a computer? Who, who gives a shit, right? <laughs> like, do you think that sounds boring? Uh, no, I think that sounds cool. Okay. But I can see why a lot of people will, will but, find that boring. Yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not that it's it's not like a consumer thing. Like, I imagine most people would find that not that interesting. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's exciting because it's a stepping stone as part of the the broader vision to like be the way people work with numbers, which I you know I find very very compelling. It's also exciting. This is gonna this is gonna sound weird, but it's very it's very cool to watch people use a system that you've built okay no I, I think i think certain products are, are systems of some sort and certain products are not systems right like if a product is some like very vertical thing where it does like one very well-defined task and yeah th this says nothing about like how valuable the thing is you, you can have a very vertical simple you know maybe simple maybe complex tool that does like a very well-defined task it solves like one very specific problem um it's not really a system I think what the thing that I find really cool about what we're doing is that we're providing a set of building blocks and a system that other people can then use to to do whatever they want. And like the financial, you know, I mean, 
I think financial modeling is interesting. It probably sounds super boring on the outside, but uh, the thing, the, the the sort of the day to day stuff that's amazing is kind of watching people take these building blocks that you've just conjured up in your head. Like we've just we've just like come up with this stuff <laughs> in our heads of like, all right, these are the building blocks. These are how we're going to let people like combine them together, like like Legos or whatever, and like. Yeah, it's it's like creating uh creating a, a bucket of Lego and watching people like create stuff with it. Like it's unbelievable. It's so cool to see that. And like when you see yeah, I think the cool thing about a system is like yeah, just like watching people interact with it and build stuff with it is very nice. And then also the stuff people come up with is often quite surprising. And so you're kind of you're almost like creating this organism and watching it like evolve and develop. And uh yeah. I think that that's why you know, even if you might find financial modeling boring, watching you know, watching people take these set of building blocks that you've created and use them to build a financial model or whatever other kind of model. It's very cool. Do you get what I mean? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, I, I would imagine it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a feeling similar to what the folks at Notion have or <laughs> if someone creates a kind of building block website builder, they always tweet about, oh my God, it's so cool to see all the different things that these people are coming up with off the back of my own building blocks. Yeah, yeah, I think like these, you know, horizontal productivity tools, I think they're really hard because it's hard to position them. It's hard to come up with the right set of building blocks that have enough flexibility. But, sorry? Hard to come up with the narrative. Yeah, yeah, hard, hard to come up with the narrative, exactly. Hell is like, narrative, who knows? Yeah, if you try and describe Notion, I mean, I, I think they describe it, or at least very re- until very recently, they were describing it as like your docs and your tasks and your wiki all in one place or something. That is not at all how they think about Notion internally. <laughs> internally, they, they want Notion to be like the new way for people to do computing, you know. But like right now, they're doing this like internal docs for companies stuff. And so you have to sort of present it in that way. Same with like Airtable. Like how the hell would you describe Airtable? I mean, how would you even describe Notion to someone? Well, it's a bit like Google Docs. Yeah, you could do all of it in Google Docs, I suppose. But it's it's just a little bit different. It, it's a little bit nicer. You know, like how do you describe the dev thing? <laughs> I think the, the phrase I've I've used is like it's it's sort of like having your own website with its own like content management system, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> Great, <laughs> that's helpful. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think like uh, I think working on abstract things is something I'm into, and we're building quite an abstract thing that other people then concretize into whatever they want. It's just cool, man. It's cool. Mm. And like, look, a lot of this stuff just seem obvious in hindsight. For example, if you go back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, All right. <laughs> there, was this, there was a spreadsheet program called VisiCalc. That was sort of like the first ever spreadsheet software for a computer. It's called VisiCalc. It, it didn't look too different from how Excel looks today. You type in some numbers, type in some formulas on this kind of grid. It'll do some calculations for you. It was pretty, pretty revolutionary. Um, it was very quickly overtaken by another another product called Lotus One Two Three, and Lotus One Two Three's core insight was that once you have the spreadsheet program, you know, once you can generate these numbers and do these calculations, you probably want to display them on charts somewhere. And so Lotus One Two Three's groundbreaking insight was combining a spreadsheet with charting software, where inside your spreadsheet you can create a bar chart or a line chart or a pie chart or whatever. And that seems it seems blindingly obvious, like. To, to us now, like, what the hell is the point of a spreadsheet if you can't create some damn charts out of the thing? Like, like of course, these two things need to be one tool, right? Um, but that was definitely not obvious at the time. And that's sort of why Lotus 123 sort of 
immediately overtook them. And the way I feel about a lot of the stuff we're doing is that it seems, I mean, it seems very obvious to us. And I think from our sort of, from people who use causal to, to a decent degree, I think it's, it's very obvious to them as well why, why this is meaningful. And yeah, look forward to the day when people will look back in hindsight and think, Matt, yeah, of course, of course, like, why would people write these ridiculous formulas with cell references that no one can understand? Like, why were people doing this? Of course, you need human readable formulas, <laughs> you know, things like that. That's why you have um, named cell references. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of narrative stuff is just obvious in hindsight, but it, it's, it takes a while to arrive there. Do you guys have a process for the narrative thing, or do you just sort of thrash it out amongst yourselves and think about it in the shower type situation? I think it's like Kevin Kwok said in the thing where fundraising is usually like the, the forcing function for refactoring your narrative. Um, yeah, we're actually in the process of fundraising at the moment. And so I've had to do a lot of this stuff over the past couple of weeks. Why are you in the process of fundraising? Sorry? Why are you trying to fundraise? I thought you had bare monies in the bank. I think it's a good time. I think we're, we're at an inflection point where the road ahead for the next 12 to 24 months is a lot clearer than it was even like two or three months ago okay like specifically this 100 to 200 person company's financial model thing yeah specifically we've we found a fairly narrow target market where from what we've seen there is certainly appetite for the product there's willingness to pay interesting amounts of money and our current version of the product is actually pretty suitable for what these what these kinds of companies need oh okay and so we're ready to to go off to the races basically so what uh what's okay so my understanding is that for the last two years now how long has causal been going on about a year and a half for the last year and a half you've been sort of building the product but also trying to sort of figure out what is a narrow vertical that we can target where we can if causal works for one company in this vertical it will work for five thousand companies in this vertical yeah and let's make it so that companies in this vertical just get enormous value out of it so that we can start charging them interesting amounts of money and start being actually profitable. And then once we have nailed it for the, the sort of this type of company, then we can start to think about how to, okay, let's now think about, okay, how, how, how might we roll out causal to other, other not to this type of companies, but probably still sort of like finding a niche and then slowly expanding over time to the point where eventually you're the de facto tool for dealing with numbers on, on, a, on a computer. But at the start, you have to start fairly narrowly. And my understanding is for the last 18 months, you've been sort of trying to figure this out. But recently, you've landed on this 100 to 200 person financial model type thing. And now you're like, oh, great, we've got a model that works. Now we now we pour fuel on the fire by hiring like salespeople and keep building the team and stuff because we found something that works and we need money to do that. Is that broadly right? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's broadly right. I think the tricky thing is that we, you know, the, the classic advice given to startups is, you know, start with a niche and then expand from there. I think it, it's dangerous advice if you're trying to build a horizontal productivity tool. I think you can't lose sight of, of you know, you really do have to keep the vision in sight of this is a very general horizontal thing. This is not just a financial modeling tool. It's not just a X tool for Y people. Um, you really have to keep a lot of, you have to stop yourself from going too narrow. And I think one of the things that changed recently for us is that we now actually have a set of building blocks in Causal that let you express pretty much anything that you can express in a spreadsheet when, when it comes to numbers. Obviously, our way of doing it is better. And so we're now sort of this actual sort of generalized system where you can actually do everything you need. 
I think a lot of a lot of the journey over the past sort of twelve months has been arriving at the right set of building blocks, um, and that's like I think that's a really hard thing to nail. It's like what are those building blocks? Um, you know, for example, in in Notion, I think this is this is absolute genius. The concept that every okay, so Notion has like pages, and then it also has databases. A database is like a, you can have like a table in Notion or something, right? And I think the truly genius concept that Notion came up with, uh, I think maybe probably like a couple of years ago now, is that every item in a database is also a page. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like in, in Notion, if you have a table, that's, it, 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 you know, you, you're looking at it as a, as a table where it has columns and these columns have some text in them or a drop down, whatever. But every row of, uh, of any database in Notion is also a page and you can open up this row and it's, it's just, just another Notion page. And so like everything in Notion is like this page and they're sort of linked together or sort of via these databases. And it seems so obvious, like when you open up Notion and you, you sort of have like a table and you can like hover over a row and you can click on like open page. It seems obvious, like, yeah, of course I can do that. <laughs> but that is, that is groundbreaking. That is so good. That's not how it works in a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like arriving at that kind of, arriving at those kinds of insights of like, th- yeah, yeah, they have some building blocks and they just work together in, in this beautiful way. I think arriving at those is really hard. And um, yeah, so far the journey has kind of been about arriving at those. And I think from September to December we, uh, of 2020, we, yeah, I'd say from, from the start until like August of last year, we had one set of things in mind, one set of building blocks. And then we realized that those set of building blocks are good for like really simple stuff, but for more complicated stuff, they're not enough. And then from September to December, we created a new building block. And I, you know, it's similar to Notion's sort of uh, thing around every, every database row is a page. I think, I think we, ha- we had a similar revelation. Um, this was actually when we were in the Dominican Republic in November a similar re- revelation where, um, yeah, around like, you know, we call them dimensions or categories, but a similar revelation where uh, this sort of grand unifying moment where it's like, oh, this thing is the same as this thing, <laughs> you know? Um, and so what was that for causal? What was that for causal? That for causal is that anything involving a list is actually the same kind of thing. It is a dimension. <laughs> 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 Wow. <laughs> it's basically all, all, all this. <laughs> what? <laughs> Groundbreaking insights. Like, what, yeah, what yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to, to sort of um, dumb it down a bit more. Thank you. Basically, all, all lists are like the same kind of thing. That's the insight. Okay. <laughs> Again, I'm going to need this dumbed down a bit more. <laughs> all right. So there, often, you, often you need to make lists of things. Okay. Okay, for example, a list of ingredients for this blueberry pancake. Or is that not the list you're talking about? Yeah, we can talk about that kind of list. I mean, you probably wouldn't do that in causal, but again, this is a very general concept. Um, okay, or, or let's say I have a list. So I'm, I actually have this as a Google Sheets model. Let's say it's a list of... Just of employees or something. Um, and also it's like lines of revenue uh, for each month, for example. Yeah, that's a dimension as well. <laughs> no, uh, that's a different kind of. Dimension. Okay, let's 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 talk about like lists of employees, right? So if if you're building a financial model for your company, uh, probably a big, probably the biggest uh, cost center is going to be headcount. It's going to be like pay- paying salaries, right? And so 
you will have somewhere a list of like, okay, these are the 10 people in the company. This is how much each person's salary is. This was their start date. You know, this is like their bonus. You know, this is what department they're in and so on. Okay. All right. So this is a, this is what I mean by list of things. You have this list and in your financial model, you want to be able to do things to this list. Basically, you want to be able to sum up all the salaries to work out the total the total expenses on salaries and things like that, okay? Um, and so the first thing was that we need to be able to handle these kinds of lists. And until until like September or something, we couldn't handle lists of things well, in a nice way. You know, you could, you could duplicate stuff. You could have like 10 copies of something and you can manually say, hey, I want to like do person one salary plus person two salary. But, you know, you, you could manually do all of this stuff, um, but it, you know, that's as bad as a spreadsheet, basically. Uh, so Causal has this concept of lists. Now, the uh, the interesting thing is that, okay, so you, you have this uh, you have this list of people and you have some attributes about them. You have some attributes which are like salary. You have some attributes which are like... Um, a favorite dog, you know, a favorite color, you know, some... Yeah, sure, st- stuff like that. And, you know, like which department they're in and, and, and in the company and so on. Now, what do, the, what, what do these attributes actually mean? So the department attribute... That's a pretty interesting one because departments are kind of a list in themselves. You'll have a list of departments. Maybe you'll have some attribute about each one. Maybe different departments, you know, when it comes to doing the accounting, different uh, departments, their expenses go into different expense categories. Um, you know, this is kind of getting details. But basically, there'll be a list of departments. They'll have some attributes. Maybe different departments get taxed differently or something, whatever. You'll have a list of um, attributes about each department. Um and look, this is going to sound really obvious in hindsight, but one of the uh, one of the groundbreaking insights was that the list of employees and the list of departments are both exactly the same kind of list. And you can, and and basically the, um, I mean, do you get what I mean by that? Like, the, they're, both. they're both just lists of things. They're both just lists of things. They're both what things? J- they're both just lists of things. Okay, yeah, I agree. They're both just lists of things, sure. Yeah, Um the reason that insight is is powerful is because then it allows you to sort of link these two things together. So, for example, if if we if we didn't think of departments as as, as a list of things, if you just maybe it's a, a static text attribute on a imp- yeah yeah a static te- text drop down of like oh select the department or something, yep. you know if if that's how it was, you know it's it's a bit like how in Notion you can have some fields which are text fields, you can have some fields which are drop downs, you know, and so if we're thinking okay, how do we build this idea of lists into causal? You know, initially the thinking is kind of like, okay, we need to let people create a table where they can create new rows in, in the table for this list. And you can have different column types. Some column types are numbers, some are dropdowns and things like that. Okay. Now with that sort of very naive approach, it's really bad because we're now introducing lots of new concepts. Now there's this idea of like, you can have tables in causal, tables can have columns, col- there are column types. You know, you're introducing like a lot of new concepts, a lot of complexity, um, the insight that the departments are actually just another kind of list that that sort of leads to the conclusion that a drop down a drop down column type yeah you know, if if we have a a drop down column type that is actually a way to link different lists and so it's not that you're just having arbitrary tracks in a drop down it's that when you have a drop down column it is actually linking one set of lists to another set of lists and so uh, in your employee list you have when you select from a drop down you're not just saying this employee is in the sales department, you're actually linking this employee to 
the, to the sales item in the department's list, which has a bunch of its own attributes. Yeah. And so these things are now connected. Okay. The next thing is what, what, what is a number field? You know, well, what is a number column type in these tables? Well, in causal, like most things are numbers anyway, you can create these variables, they can have names, they can have values. And so the number column type is actually just a variable. So you have a variable called salary, yeah. which has this list applied to it, and it has different salaries for each person. Um, and so essentially, the variable salary has a list applied to it, rather than the list of employees has the variable of salary applied to it. Yes. I mean, you can think of it either way, really. But essentially, essentially, the columns in these tables correspond to the same concepts that we've had floating around, plus this one new concept of lists. And so now we have basically two concepts in causal, we have variables and we have lists. And the, simpl the simplicity of having just these two concepts that can interact in certain ways provides like the ultimate flexibility to actually pretty much express anything that you might need to express in a spreadsheet. And I think I'm really glad we arrived at that because there is a chance we, we wouldn't have arrived at that. And there is a chance we would have thought, okay, we need lists of things in causal. So we need some kind of concept of databases where you can like create this arbitrary table and you can enter text into some columns. You can have drop downs in some columns. And there is a chance we might have actually just thought, okay, that's the best way to do it. We now need, we have now have like two sides to causal. We have this like database side where you have these tables and, uh, and lists of things. And then you have like the modeling side where you write your formulas and stuff like that. And that would have been really bad. That would have been absolutely disastrous. And yeah, arriving at this thing of like, okay, there's literally two concepts, there's variables and there's lists and everything else follows directly from those. I think that that was like really groundbreaking. Okay. Uh, and, and like, it sounds so, look, it sounds so obvious when I say, when I say, yeah, of course these drop, of course a dropdown field is like a link between two lists. It sounds so obvious. Well, it was not obvious to arrive at that. <laughs> I guarantee it. What did that feel like? What, what, was it like the, uh, the, the finale of Silicon Valley season one? <laughs> Where yes. <laughs> here's the phrase middle out and then suddenly <gasps> Oh my god, middle out compression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, it it was like a moment from a movie. It was like it was like uh who's the gravity guy? It was like the it was like a the Eureka moment from the guy in the bathtub where it was like, oh my god, everything is a list. Like, <laughs> like it was nuts. It was <laughs> it was divine inspiration. Where were you when that when that divine inspiration struck? I think I was sitting on the porch in our little house in the Dominican Republic, sketching on my iPad, <laughs> like to try to figure out what the hell is going on. Well, you were, you were actively thinking about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this, this thing of like everything, everything is a list was like mind blowing. And then did you like jump at me like, Lucas, I've got it. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. It was like a scene out of a movie. Yeah. And then, okay. And then you go to Lucas and be like, Lucas, I've got it. Everything is a list. And then. Yeah. Does he immediately get it, or is no, it? Like, no, 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 no. He tries. He tries to poke holes in it. Then he tries to poke holes in it. He said, "Okay, if everything is a list, how would you do this?" And I'm like, "Yep, you do it like this." All right, how would you do this? And then after a few more of those, he was like, "Okay, that's pretty good." <laughs> <laughs> it was sick. Nice. That sounds quite fun. It's great, man. And yeah, this this is kind of what I mean. Like coming up with these general building blocks and having people use them however they want is really cool. Like, even if you think financial models are boring, I think a lot of people would find just this abstract side of things pretty cool. Nice. So you came up with the concept of everything's a list, and then your next three months was, was sorted out in implementing the fact that everything is a list. That and building a spreadsheet for you for causal. 
Yeah, I don't know if you've seen the product recently. But. I haven't seen it recently, but like this conversation is making me want to double with it more. It's just like, so, so my issue with doubling with, with Causal is that I feel like it would be, it would be nice to have a proper, a proper model with all of our stuff, but it just feels like too much of a sunk cost, too much of a fixed cost associated with learning the software. Oh, with the setup. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to be the big challenge going forward. like actually getting companies on board, especially when they have an existing sort of fairly complex financial model. It's very, it's non-trivial to like learn a new tool to do this stuff, but that's that's part of the challenge that we're taking on. You've got like a, a concierge service where you can just sort of build build it for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, we have. Yeah, we work with a bunch of. Um, we don't, we don't do the building ourselves. We pay other folks to do it. Um, but yeah, we do the heavy lifting. So if I wanted to have the heavy lifting done, can you can you hook me up with someone, or is it not really worth it for for my use cases? I think your use case is pretty simple. You could probably just build it yourself and causal in like half an hour or something oh okay i'll try it today on valentine's day <laughs> yeah a special activity and is there a way of of zapiering like data points into it yeah okay cool that sounds pretty solid um where have we got to this uh okay so last three months Narrative building system, a, spreadsheet, yeah. a spreadsheet view and you can presumably you can toggle nicely between spreadsheet view and non-spreadsheet view exactly yeah they're just different views on top of the same concepts but again i think like narrative and how you package things up is so important because I think the way people perceived the product for most of last year, pre-spreadsheets, when we just had what we now call the cards view, um, it was very different. I think um, I think when you look when you look at the cards view, it looks like super simple. It doesn't look like this thing is powerful enough to to handle like a serious financial model, and like the the kinds of folks who are really super early adopters who like figuring stuff out, I think they were okay with that. They they sort of figured out the interface. They figured out actually, wow, you can do pretty much anything in this. Um, but I think there were also plenty of people who looked at that and kind of thought, oh, it looks cool, maybe for like really simple stuff, but you know, there's, there's no way I can do my financial modeling in this thing. And so just like packaging it up in a more familiar way, um, it kind of engenders a lot of trust that, oh, okay, I probably, I won't run into any issues with this thing. It looks like a spreadsheet. It can probably do everything a spreadsheet can do, um, which is maybe too trusting <laughs> of us. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it's like the way you package up the same concepts is so important. How did how did you go about building your spreadsheets? Sorry, how did you go about building the spreadsheets? So actually, Andrew, our um, our engineer, sort of took the lead on that. He did most of it. Um, what does that involve? Like, is there some sort of library that you can just plug into this, like a spreadsheet library, or did was it like a lot of custom? Yeah, at the, mo- at the moment we're using a library called AG Grid. It's basically a JavaScript grid library. This this is a this is a phenomenal business, by the way. They just make this JavaScript grid library. Um, I think they're. I think the team is not terribly big. I think the team is like 10, like, I think it's like less than 10 engineers or something like that. And they're definitely making in the dozens of millions of dollars a year by licensing this thing out to any company that needs a complex grid in their software. And basically, if you're like a bank or a big finance company, you'll have like a bunch of software engineers building internal stuff. And Obviously, all this financy type stuff needs some kind of grid, needs some kind of tables and things like that. And so basically every bank pays AG Grid a ton of cash to like be able to use their JavaScript library for their internal applications. So I, I think I think these like li- library type companies, like why you build this thing and like you just license it out to a ton of people and you just print cash. It's uh, it's pretty cool. JavaScript grid in the world. <laughs> Pricing. Yeah, from what, from what we saw that it, it is actually the best JavaScript grid in the world. Wow. Oh. Yeah, so it's like $1,000 a year for a developer. I mean, I think we have like three licenses or something. A bank would have like hundreds, thousands of licenses of this thing. Oh, okay. Wow, that's such a great business. 
Phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> they just build this library that lets you turn stuff into a grid. Yeah. I mean, it's a complex library. <laughs> I don't want to trivialize it, but yeah, it's really cool. Okay, so you guys are licensing for $3,000 a year this a snippet of code, effectively. And Andrew, your mate Andrew built something on top of it that seems to work. Yeah, we're, we're really pushing it to its limits, though. Um, yeah, you're not, you're not supposed to use AG Grid to build, like, actual sort of actual spreadsheets type stuff that we're doing. Uh, so I think this is temporary. Um, pretty soon we'll so have to... Like Google Sheets is not using AG Grid. They've probably got their own. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Okay, so you want to ultimately build your own, like, Google Sheets view? Yeah, look, it's... It's a view. It's not actually a spreadsheet. It, it's a grid-like interface. It just looks a bit like a spreadsheet. And you can interact with it like you could, like you can a spreadsheet. In very similar ways, but not exactly the same. For example, you can't just click on a cell and t- start typing in text mm. because that would break. There's no real concept of text in causal apart from in lists. And yeah, <laughs> everything is a list. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. I will. I will have a little play around with it. Um, yeah, how did we get onto all this? Vision, narrative, fundraising. Uh, that that sort of stuff. In in other exciting news, have, have you come across a website called Tattle Tattle Life? No, what is it? It's like this forum where people post like mean comments about celebrities and stuff. Okay. Yeah, and I recently I discovered a few days ago that there is a thread about me on this forum. Really? In the like influencers section. Can we bring it up? Oh, How we can. Mind? I've actually I actually did like that 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 day when I discovered it. Um, I filmed a reaction video with Sheen where she was reading out some of these things and we were sort of reacting and reacting to them. Um, so this thread was created on October the 4th, 2020. Could someone start a thread on Ali Abdal in Influencers? I can't make one and I'd be interested in seeing what others make of him. And then it's like seven pages worth of stuff. Um, a lot of it, which is around, uh, yeah, just... <laughs> is it only mean comments? Are you not allowed to say nice things on this site? Um, if there is a nice thing then it's all it's often like backhanded be like oh i don't mind his x content which is actually not bad but actually you know the fact that he does y is like horrendous and really you know i'm i i don't mind his beard but the way that he talks on camera is just like really ridiculous you know that 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 level of okay um (laughs) how how did you feel when reading these because i mean you're used to sort of some hate comments on youtube and stuff but seeing an entire community community dedicated to hating on you that's that's different right (laughs) that's gotta hurt (laughs) yeah it's it's a bit different um there were a lot that were just like uh, that that were just funny the 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 ones where i i i i felt a modicum of something was there were a few that were like um you know, I would I wouldn't trust him as a doctor because uh, he you know just comes across as a snake oil salesman. And uh, there were even a few people that were like, yeah, he 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 was actually my doctor when I was in the hospital. And one yes. guy was like, I you know he came into the he came into my room and I was like, oh god, not that Bellin from Instagram. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, there, were, there were one or two about how I was uh, quiet and awkward in real life and not at all like I am on camera, um, which is interesting uh there were lots about how you know how dare you leave medicine in the midst of a pandemic um it's weird there were a few about uh there was that there was one oh my god i can't believe he made a video about how to get started with investing aren't there some is, is isn't there a law against you know non-financial advisors giving financial advice and then someone commented on that saying oh i disagree with that i mean like his his, his video was quite reasonable and all his suggestion was to do warren buffett's tech approach of index funds uh in my, in my honest opinion, initially, he wanted to go to the USA primarily for the better compensation. Um, but in the meantime, his YouTube and other streams of income exploded. So the USA 80-hour workweek enthusiasm has evaporated a bit, lol. Which is fair enough, but again shows that money is number one priority before opportunities for better medical education or medicine at all. 
something to keep in mind when he tries to sell something to you. Wouldn't be surprised if he openly nixed going to the USA very soon. Watch him try to justify it with the USMLE system changes that are going on. Like, <laughs> 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 what's going on here? Uh, but I mean, I can I can see why. Uh, what else? Um, I don't religiously watch his videos, but didn't he do a what I spend in the week video where he openly admitted to ordering takeaway slash convenience food slash food at the hospital because he doesn't enjoy cooking? Feels like a bit of a cash grab in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> I don't get it. Oh, this is the, the this is related to I think my my course about how to cook productively, where I was like I'm trying to learn how to cook because I've been living off takeaway, and um, people hanging on to his every word to find a glimmer of the success he has had. Um, he's clearly very very business minded with good branding slash marketing and knowledge around SEO etc. But I'm not sure that there is a formula that you can teach people on how to be successful YouTubers. So much of it is right place, right time, connections, the luck of a viral video etc. I really do wonder what he teaches on the course slash the YouTuber Academy. Like, yeah, fair enough. So how did, how do you feel when you generally, you said that some of them, like the ones like calling you the bell end from Instagram when you're at the hospital, that was a bit hurtful. Uh, I wouldn't say, I would say hurtful. I'd be like, I was, I was just a bit like, damn, this is, this feels like it's, it's having like real life repercussions in a way that I don't like and I don't expect. There were a few that were like, oh, you know, if he were my doctor, I would request a different doctor because I see that he reveals too much of his life. And I've seen him walking around in a towel and stuff on his vlogs. Um, this uh, there was a similar similar controversy around the medical influencer community of like in last year sometime where it emerged that there were some doctors who have bikini photos on their Instagram. And the Daily Mail did like a whole thing about like, oh, oh I remember this doctors thing. wearing like in bikinis on Instagram. And then loads of people shot back. But like, who cares what someone does in their spare time? Like you know what, what the hell are you guys talking about yeah a few people uh, it was a, a guy who reported me to the asa apparently for not disclosing sponsored videos um <laughs> oh here we go here's the final one finally a thread on him i'm a current medical student and it's really hard to levy any criticism his way because a lot of students see him almost like the second coming <laughs> <laughs> i genuinely liked his content a few years ago it was a bit a clickbaity but his tips on studying were really clear and evidence-based now it really just seems to be about making as much money as possible without really putting out much original content. It always irked me that he put the hashtag, hashtag saving lives in all his Instagram posts, even when the video was just him studying as a medical student. Clearly missed, on, missed out on the fact that that was irony, but <laughs> clinical medical students, blah, 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 blah. By all means, he can do what he likes to make money, but it seems like the focus is just on number one, recycling old ideas into costly video tutorials, two, releasing a YouTube video on how much these tutorials have earned him, three, and then advertising the video tutorials by suggesting users can earn as much as he can. Hmm. And he's not the first one to do this. I know of another YouTuber based in Europe who was making videos as a medical student about how she was going to be saving lives soon. After her first year as a doctor, she left to focus on other business ventures, blah, 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 blah. And don't even get me started on him putting cheeky in every bloody thing. 17 likes on that on, the, on on that thread how do you feel about that one? Oh, uh i mean pretty indifferent but <laughs> like it's it's just kind of funny um do you feel indifferent i feel like you always say this and you always say oh you know like come on mate it must be not nice to read something like that i don't know how much i buy your whole thing of like stoicism and like oh i'm, I'm always indifferent I'm, I'm immune to this stuff hmm let me think how do i actually feel about this do you want to project that you're immune to this stuff but i find that very hard to believe I mean, I've, 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 I've often felt that, that, that comments like, I used to like his videos because ABC, but now all he cares about is money and it's really obvious. I've always, like, I, w I wouldn't say feel, I wouldn't say I feel bad about those because it's probably true to a large, to a large degree. Like, okay. when you start off doing anything for the fun and then you switch to doing it for the money, it does change 
it does change the equation. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend that this is not a, this is not a business and that I'm doing this out of altruism and out of, oh, just because it's fun and, and, and this and that. And so having that pointed out doesn't make me feel bad because it's true, but it does make me feel like, okay, uh, maybe I don't do a good enough job of, of being transparent about it. I, mean, I, th I, th I think I do. I think I do a good enough job of being transparent about it. I think it just is, it just is the case that when you have a, a certain number of, of, of followers, some for some small percentage of that, of those are not going to like your vibe and that's fine. And so like I read this and I, and I think, oh, it's kind of interesting. And okay, this is kind of interesting, interesting, interesting. He, that he advertises tutorials suggesting users can make as much money as he can. Like that's like ob objectively not true. And I have like half an hour worth of virtue signaling and caveating at the start of each of my money themed videos to say that this is not, not how it works. And so it's like, well, I see a comment was where, where someone has read the headline, but hasn't watched the video and they're like, oh my God, you know, or they skipped ahead to see, oh my God, he's making this much money on YouTube, but haven't watched the 25 minutes of caveating that I put at the start. Um, oh, here's, here's another one. Sorry for the, uh, uh, sorry for the essay. This guy just, just grates my fucking cheese. Try hard, <laughs> all right seeming lad turned hardcore shiller and influencer moron. I've said it before and I'll say it again. He's got caught up in the fame and money and people are starting to realize it. But the, again, like that's <laughs> like, okay, fair enough. Uh, it's kind of funny. But this person's main point is that I am trying to convince people that everyone can achieve this level of success, which is absolutely not my spiel. Um, so again, you're describing things as like funny. I think you're, it's, it seems to me like you're trying very hard to not say that it feels bad to read these things. Come on, mate. I don't just what, admit it. I don't know what it means by like feel feel. I don't bad. know what it means to feel bad. Yeah, you bloody do, mate. When you say like, oh, oh I felt a modicum of something when I read that. Uh, yeah. People normally call that feeling bad. That's what that is, <laughs> all right? <laughs> you can sugarcoat it with modicums, <laughs> as many modicums as you like. <laughs> I think. Why do you find uh, it so hard to just say, I, you know, it's not nice to read these mean comments about me? Oh yeah, sure. I'll I'll I'll, I'll get on board with that. It's it's not nice. <laughs> what? <laughs> But I wouldn't go so so far as to say feels feels bad because I I, I what the hell is wrong with you? Fe feels bad in my head feels like a different level of feeling. Okay, bad. tell me what feels bad. Like what what counts as feeling bad? What like, what's, feeling what's, bad? The, what's the what's the what's the lowest thing that would count as feeling bad? Feeling bad is is a, is if I've upset someone in real life, uh, inadvertently. Okay, so that that's like the the lowest bar for feeling bad. Um, Any, anything less than that, and you wouldn't be. It's not feeling bad. All right, getting rejected by a girl, for example, does that cross into feeling bad territory or is, or is that just not nice? <laughs> it's not nice that you might feel, feel a modicum of something. Um, <laughs> getting rejected by a girl doesn't fall into feeling bad territory. Okay, all right. I, it, it, it probably would have done like ten, eight, eight to 10 years ago. Okay, so the best thing that falls into feeling bad territory is when you've upset your friend. The best thing? <laughs> uh, probably. I don't have many, yeah, it's, I, I, I think, okay. I think feeling bad, obviously, if, if, if we take this, the, the stoicism approach to it, there's, there's the gut initial feeling that you can't control of like, oh, okay. Um, a lot of people who research around emotions would say that that's a feeling of um, unpleasantness. And then yeah. the rest of the feeling bad is the narrative that you tell yourself about it. And so if I've upset a friend, then I have that feeling of unpleasantness and the narrative I'm going to tell myself is, wow, I'm a dick. That's going to make me feel bad. If I read a comment like this, like, like on this forum, then the initial reaction is a feeling of unpleasantness or, oh, this is not nice. But okay. I wouldn't feel bad about it because the, the story 
the, 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 the narrative that leads to the feeling bad gets cut off at the appropriate point. And I'm not sure there is a comment someone could make, or I can't imagine a comment that someone would make where I would actually, quote, feel bad. Unless it was something like if I, if I was like bullying someone on camera and people called me out on it, then that I'll be like, oh, I'm a dick. Yeah, you're right. I feel bad. Okay. So, right. Naval and Tim Ferriss have both admitted on a podcast that if they are called fake gurus, they might feel a bit bad about that. But what you're saying is, A, you're more enlightened than Naval. <laughs> and B, <laughs> what I'm saying? You're, more, so you're more enlightened than your own guru, Tim Ferriss. <laughs> and you actually don't feel bad even when people accuse you of being a fake guru. Like, this is just ridiculous. I think it's just semantic. I don't buy it. I, no, I mean, th- th- that's fine. I think it is a large part of this is the semantics around what, what does the phrase feel bad mean? Yes. I, why, don't, why do you try so hard to avoid saying the phrase feel bad when you're happy to say things like, oh, it feels not nice? Like most people, most people would say those, those are the same things. Like, why do you have to go through all this gymnastics to avoid saying feel bad? Because I don't think it's a case of going through gymnastics. I think the, or, or rather, insofar as we do go through mental gymnastics, that actually does change the way that we feel about stuff. And given that, and given that I'm in the business of not wanting things to affect my tranquility. Obviously, the thought patterns and stuff that I've reinforced over the last eight to 10 years are around this idea of I can choose how I respond to something in a given moment. For example, if I'm if I get slightly annoyed about something, it's going to last two seconds. And then I'm and then I'll and then I'll forget about it. You might say most people would call that that you're angry or that you're pissed off. Like, why are you so why are you so scared of saying the word the, the phrase angry? But like, I genuinely cannot remember the last time I was I was actually angry. Um, Sheen might see me speaking to Mimi sometimes and be like, oh, you were angry there. I was like, no, I really wasn't. Like, <laughs> that's not anger. That's just, that's just banter. And equally, when it comes to feeling bad, the actual feeling in my, in my, in my mind, the feeling of feeling bad is so rare for me. And it, and, and it's reserved for instances where I, 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 where I think the person is right. And I, and I have been a dick that this does not come into that level of feeling bad. I'm happy to say it's feeling not nice because it's like, you know, it's nice to drink a, a, a tasty cup of tea and it's not nice to read mean comments about yourself on the internet. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that that makes me feel bad. Um, I see. Something, that, something that, would, that would make me feel bad would be, for example, if they were like, if someone was like, I was a patient of his in the hospital and he was really rude to me and he came across as an arrogant prick. I'd be like, okay, that feels bad because if that's the, if that's the, if that's the experience that person has, has had, then that is something that I, I should feel bad about because I don't want to want to want to give them that experience. Whereas if the but comment, surely you don't want to you don't want to give these online commenters the experience of thinking you're selling snake oil. No, I don't. But I think in that in that context, uh, it, there's there's so, it's it's there's so many layers of other things going on there rather than a one to one interaction with a patient at work. If hypothetically they were to say that um, he was he wasn't very good, he made me feel small, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you get what I mean? I think part of it is the scale as well. It's like if if I had like a Zoom call with someone and they and they thought I came across as an arrogant prick, I I would I probably wouldn't like that. Uh, I I would probably okay. feel bad about that because it's a it's it's different than a sort of put out a video that's viewed by a million people where some people who haven't watched the whole video think that I'm selling snake oil even though that's not what I'm doing as I said 18 times in the video, but they didn't watch the video. Like you know, <laughs> the story around the feeling bad is is just so different that I wouldn't I wouldn't call it feeling bad. Hold that thought. I see. Am I bullshitting myself or, or does that sound reasonable? I don't think it sounds that reasonable. I think this, this, you know, this thing about like the stoicism thing about choosing what, choosing the story you tell yourself about things, that's all well and good. But I think your gut reaction to something is how you actually feel about the thing. Like if your gut reaction, dude, what's wrong with your camera? Like 
if, for example, my gut reaction to something was that I was absolutely devastated. And then after a few minutes, I, you know, I sort of calmed down a bit and I was like, okay, this is actually all right. That still counts as me being absolutely devastated. It's stupid for me to say, no, man, I've chosen not to tell myself that story. And so I'm just going <laughs> to... I think we're using different, different meanings of the phrase gut reaction. What I'm using by okay. reaction is literally that millisecond to one second response when you see something. And then the rest of it is narrative. Um, and that would be this, this thing of, this thing of uh, pleasant versus unpleasant or uh, attention versus inattention, which is how a book that we're going to discuss in this podcast at some point calls it. Like those are the only four gut reactions that we have to stuff. And, and all of the rest of it is narrative and story and cultural associations and all this sort of stuff. So you being absolutely, absolutely devastated for minutes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that, but, but I, I would, I would, I'm, I'm not referring to that as gut reaction. I'm not saying that I'm feeling something for a period of time and then I'm rationalizing it away. I'm saying that when it comes to this sort of stuff, it's a feeling of like unpleasantness initially. And then very like almost immediately, it's a, a sense of fair play mate or lol. That's just quite funny. I see. Having said that, I also, I think, I think there is a level, there is an element for me where I, I don't feel emotions particularly strongly. And probably a large part of that is where I, choose not to slash try not to feel emotions particularly strongly so this is some this is an area where that i i actually do want to explore with a therapist or something at some point just because it would be interesting and i'm doing this course on public speaking at the moment which is like three three times a week on zoom calls and i'm i'm i mean i'm, I'm pretty solid at public speaking but one area that i one like huge area for improvement is being more em, being more like emotive and emotional and feelingsy when like thinking about how do I actually feel about this thing rather than being completely cognitive and like, Hey, you know, the topic is the worst mistake I ever made. And so one, one approach to that is to think about it and talk yeah. and the other approach is to really feel it and talk. And it's the really feeling it and talk and talking that I'm actively working on improving. And yeah, I think a huge part of that is the fact that I don't acknowledge my actual emotions and don't like let myself feel them. Uh, because when it comes to negative emotions, I, I don't I don't like the sensation of letting myself feel a negative emotion. And so if I can choose not to do that, then I will choose not to do that. Yeah, look, it kind of makes sense. It's hard for me to know whether you're bullshitting yourself or not. Um, I'm still a little bit skeptical of this. And, mm. and the reason is just that, yeah, I think it's the reason is that it comes across as if you're really making an effort to avoid saying things like it, it, it doesn't come across as like uh particularly naturally you know i think if someone if someone genuinely did not feel bad about these things and was genuinely like stoic about these things i think their responses to these things would be different to yours whereas well, your responses come across as if you're making some kind of effort uh, i want i wonder if that's because we're talking about it on this podcast where we overthink everything and it would be, it wouldn't be acceptable for me to be like, oh yeah, I saw this, this thread of like seven pages long about mean comments about me, but uh, it's fine. It's all just banter. A truly stoic person might just be like, what? Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting to explore that. No, no, I, I no, no, I don't think the, exp I don't think it's the fact like the, 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 the sort of the red flags are not that you decided to bring this up and we decided to read the comments. It's much more like, yeah, much more sort of tiny little things that you say or ways you say things and micro expressions um in the way you, that you respond to these things that doesn't seem entirely natural to me okay fair enough and so that's why i'm a little skeptical yeah i can see that 
Yeah, it's 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 kind of weird right now because like my voice is sort of breaking a little bit more than it was before we got into this conversation, <laughs> and. I'm not sure that's if that's just because my mouth is dry or because I'm actually like my body wants to feel something and I'm not letting it. And yeah, I, I can, your voice certainly sounds different. It sounds, it seems like, it seems like you're, I mean, you're not crying, but your eyes are sort of <laughs> moister than before. Yeah, my, my eyes also do feel moister than, than, than they did earlier. <laughs> it's like, what's going on there? <laughs> These are generally signs of feeling I mean, bad. Script grid in the world, in the world, away from this forum post. <laughs> Yeah, dude, I'm. I don't. I don't buy this. To be honest, uh, I'll. I'll. I think, I'll think about this later today. Yeah, I think you should. Mm. Anything else we need to talk about? Moving swiftly on. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, let's start to wrap things up. I think this has been. Uh, this has gone on long enough. I'll read a review. Very good. I'm also trying to learn how to freestyle rap, which has been quite fun. Oh yeah. Do you want to give us a little? Uh, no, <laughs> it's, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I thought you don't care what people think of you and you're happy to look like a fool. Um, that's true. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I'm saying it's embarrassing. Look at that. Relatable that way. Because what? It feels more relatable that way. I see. Right. <laughs> All right. Here's a review. Uh, it's a four-star review. It's entitled Enjoyable Podcast When It's Not a Book Review. This is from Curated Study in Great Britain. I've been listening to the podcast since it began and generally really enjoy hearing you both have a conversation. I like the format of there being a specific topic followed by an almost unstructured conversation rather than you having your thoughts already solidified about a specific topic. Because as a listener, it's interesting to hear out your thought processes. However, I feel that podcasts about book reviews are somewhat rushed and the discussions are not as detailed and interesting to listen to as opposed to when you have one standalone topic, e.g. children. That's a fair point, I think. I mean, we had some people who liked the last episode about the book book review, but I thought it was kind of rubbish. I mean, our book review episodes tend to be the most downloaded ones as well. Dude, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's the most downloaded one. A BuzzFeed article will get more, like, clicks or whatever. That's not the point. I'm not saying it's the point. I'm saying it's a point. <laughs> what point is it? It's a point if, if you know, if you're going to read out one comment from someone who says they don't like a book review, and there are also comments from people who say they do like book reviews, and there is also the data point that book reviews tend to be some of the most downloaded episodes. You know, these are all factors to take into account when thinking about how we approach book reviews. Yeah, I think we should heavily downweight the, like, the downloads thing. Downloads things are basic, like, surely just based on what the title is, yeah. right? Which, uh, sure, which shows that Book Discussion X is potentially a more intriguing title than Why Do We Hate Children, <laughs> for example. I think there is a recurring theme where long-time listeners of the podcast who like the podcast for its differentiated factor, which is that it's not like every other podcast, which is interview. It's not like every other podcast, which is like, you know, reading book reviews. Long-term listeners who like it for its differentiation regularly dislike these things. No, do they? I, I wait. I mean, I mean, that's definitely, that's definitely a theme with the people who don't like um, some of the podcasts, some of the more interview episodes, some of the b more book review episodes. Oh, right. Have we had multiple comments from people saying they don't like the book review episodes? I mean, I, th I think a general trend in the, in the, in the sort of, I mean, these aren't bad, a four-star review is not like a bad comment, but the general trend in these sort of bad comments is like, look, I've been a long-time listener for the podcast. I liked it because of the original things about it. And now you guys are doing like all this, all this like standard stuff. That, like, that's definitely a trend. And for example, I would weight that a lot more highly than, oh, the book review ones get more downloads. Oh, when we have some like personal as an interviewee, it gets more downloads. Who cares? Mm, on, 
on the interview front, fine. On the on the book review front, I'm I, I I haven't seen the data, but I'm skeptical that the data is as clear cut as you you say it is. Given that we have been doing book reviews since the beginning, and certainly the courage to be disliked, the aspiration, you know, the ones where there is more of a two way discussion, whereas compared to something like the Righteous Mind, which is which is kind of a oh this guy's presenting some scientific evidence and then, oh that's kind of interesting. I don't think you should write off the format of book discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. I, I think I think it has to be a book discussion in the right kind of way. I think, yeah, just you know, we shouldn't do a book discussion about freaking atomic habits, for example. Hey, leave atomic habits out of this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, uh, thank you everyone for listening, and we will see you next week. See you later. that's it for this week thank you for listening if you like this episode please leave us a review on apple podcasts or on the apple podcast website if you're not using an iphone there's a link in the show notes if you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum question or just anything that we could discuss yeah if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. if you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly that's fine as well tweet or DM us at N Overthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.